0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: This
3: week on Meat and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads.
2: Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years.
3: I was living in uh, Nepal and in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called Paya.
4: Parate Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets
2: in Old Delhi. Tune in to meetin in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Kristen and Mark Kimball are the co-owners of Essex Farm, five hours north of where we are sitting now. The farm offers local members year-round unlimited access to over 50 types of fruits and vegetables, grass-fed meats and dairy, pastured eggs, and dried goods like grains and flowers, and delivers to non-local members' doorsteps. We'll be discussing the realities of running the world's first full diet, Free Choice CSA, now 15 years in. Kristen's latest memoir, Good Husbandry, and why there still exists such a maddening disconnect between the small to mid-sized producer and slow food-supporting consumer. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Carl. It's great to be here.
4: So um, Mark will be joining us later. He is stuck in rainy day in New York City traffic, um, just warning our listeners. Um, so let's start with your history and your timeline. Um, you as is commonly known in in a lot of the press about you, you started here as a literary, working at a literary agency here in New York City, writing for travel guides. And how did you end up owning a farm?
3: Um, I became interested as a freelance writer in um, writing about agriculture. And this is back in 2001, um, when that seemed really fresh and I was going to be on the cutting edge. Um, And I was interviewing um, farmers and meeting and seeing farms all along the Hudson Valley, I kept hearing about this guy in Pennsylvania who, you know, everybody thought I should go talk to because he was really loquacious and he was smart and he had a lot of interesting ideas and he would just give great copy. So, I, you know, took my beat-up old car from the East Village and drove to Pennsylvania to meet him um, and very quickly and unprofessionally fell deeply in love um, not just with him but with what he was doing on his piece of land and um, within three months he had left his farm in Pennsylvania and I left my apartment in the East Village and we went looking for a piece of land together to start what became Essex farm and um, And here we are, 16 years later, we have uh, about 300 people that we feed year-round. We farm about 1,300 acres, and we have two great kids and um, a very full and interesting life that's based around food and eating. Mm
4: -hmm. So you said, let's set the scene first, Mm -hmm. Um, you said this all kind of began in 2001 and that you felt you were kind of on this wave that was just beginning and this interest in food. And so can you kind of set the scene? um, What were people eating at that time? And what were people thinking about food and the food system, if at all?
3: You know, when I think back to it now, it seems impossible. But I really don't think people were thinking very deeply about the food system in 2001. I always credit um, Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, um, with being the the book that kicked us off into thinking more deeply about where our food came from. I read that book at that at the time that it came out and that's what made me start thinking about where my food was coming from, what the food system looked like, um, who was producing it, and for me particularly, what would it look like if people were doing it at a small or medium scale? What happens, you know, when you go from producing for um, a grand, grand scale to producing for people that you know? Um, and luckily... I happened upon that book and and that way of thinking when the rest of the world was just beginning to think about it too. So when our farm started and and was producing a full diet year-round for our membership, um, luckily we found a market that was interested and ready to meet us where we were and take a risk on the food that we were producing
4: Mm -hmm. and not only did you happen about it but you kind of gave a voice to maybe the more casual consumer of farm news or farm readings I guess and so uh, can you talk about your first book Um, what was it about and what was kind of the impetus for writing that book
3: Sure. The Dirty Life was my first book, and it was about our startup year. So it was me leaving the city, um, meeting Mark, falling in love, um, the love story of, you know, the the human love story between us, and the love story between me and the land and producing food. Um, And it covers the year that it took us to get that farm up and running. Um, And anybody who has any experience at all in farming will recognize immediately that starting such a diversified farm is um, a really ambitious project. Um, Mark was and is ambitious enough to believe that that's possible, and I was ignorant enough at the time to not be too afraid of it. Um, so, from our very first year, we we milked a cow. Um, we had beef cattle. We had chickens. Uh, we had pigs. Um, we produced about 50 different kinds of vegetables. Um, everything that we do now to provide a full diet, we did our first year with the exception of a couple things like, um, we didn't have sheep back then. And now we have a flock of about 300 sheep. So, um, we started tiny in that we were only producing for seven people at the beginning of our first season, but we were almost as diversified as we are now. Mm -hmm. So in the past, having a diversified farm didn't seem like a big,
4: Deal. Um, it, it was kind of the necessary if you wanted to eat, interestingly. Um, but why today is it so strange and difficult to run a diversified
3: farm? Diversity in agriculture is very expensive, um, both in the amount of skill and uh, management. Uh, capability that you need, but also in the infrastructure that's required to, you know, grow at any scale above personal consumption. So, you know, for a farm like ours, we need to have, um, you know, a, a functional dairy where we can bring our cows in and and milk the cows and chill the milk. We need um, haymaking equipment to, um, you know, store feed for the winter. We grow grains, so we have to have grain growing and harvesting equipment. Um, We have a lot of vegetable, specialized vegetable tillage equipment, um, because in organic production, you need proper tools in order to do that well. Um, And all of those things taken together are just expensive. Um, You know, the beauty of it, the beauty of diversity in agriculture is that all of those systems working together can be really synergistic. You know, having plants and animals on the same farm means that you're fertility from the animals is going to improve the growth of the plants and the plants are feeding the animals and there's no uh, waste or excess or pollution in that system their way there there might be if you're just producing an- animals or just producing plants that need fertility imported.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like the kind of elementary school example that we're all familiar with is like the three sisters, right? Corn, bean, and soy, and how having all those three is not only great for the eaters, but also for the environment. so what are some other ways that your farming practices can work for
3: you instead of against you? One of the coolest things that we've done in the last few years is build um, a really good composting system. So everything that's produced on our farm that doesn't get consumed by us or by the animals um, goes into our compost barn where it's made into um, beautiful, really healthy, um, very potent compost that gets spread back on to the field and used to increase the fertility and the productivity of the land. Um, Soil health is like a really nerdy... uh, agricultural-specific po- thing to talk about, but it's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the deeper we get into the life that we've chosen, the more we understand about, you know, how the care of the soil is is so important. Mm-hmm. And we keep getting better at it, which is great. Mm-hmm. And so um, this might be an obvious question, but what does soil
4: health lead to in terms of what the consumer can taste and um, is paying for?
3: Uh, I think... You know, all these things we don't have, we don't necessarily have words to put on it, and we certainly don't have ways to measure it. Um, one of the things that we do know is that. Um, uh, the, the importance of sequestering more carbon in soil, um, the very act of tillage, you know, the, what we do in order to produce an annual crop is destructive to the soil. And the more that we can come up with techniques um, to keep the carbon in the soil, the, the more productive our land is, the more resilient we are in the face of a changing climate. Um, and I think the more delicious the food that comes out of that piece of land is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before we
4: get too deep into farming stuff, um, I wanted to kind of backtrack and talk more about the books. Um, So the way that I see Mark talk about the books and sell the books is it feels like yet another product from the farm. Like it's alongside corn and eggplant on farm stalls. And I feel like that's metaphorical in a way. And I feel like um, you're not the only one invested in the success of your book, but also many members of your farm team are very deeply kind of invested in this book as well. And so why do you think is it so important for your team at Essex Farm for this book to not only be successful, but
3: for its mission to be understood? Um, I think, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about, about this before, but um, there's less than 2% of the population producing food for the rest of the country right here in America right now. And for those of us who are doing it, it can feel a little lonely sometimes. And um, I think the power of story to be able to share what it really is like to do what we do um, is really powerful. And I think I hear from farmers um, sometimes who've read the books uh, that it just makes them feel like they're not in it alone, that there's somebody else in the world who gets it. And then for consumers, it's just deeply important for people to know um what it's really like um and and to make the food system a little bit more visible I think that's why people invest in in yeah the, in these books
4: mm-hmm. yeah and I'm um, though I've never farmed and though I've never worked on a farm um a lot of the challenges and kind of human moments you talk about in the book are very very relatable and um like I think Um, A week before I read your first book, I had ripped a hole in my cashmere sweater, and you did so, too, in the book. And I was like, oh, my God, we're the same person. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's a moment in the second book, or I guess it's a larger moment, where um, you uh, grow very close. I believe her name is Racy. Mm -hmm. You grow very close with Racy, and um, there's a moment where she leaves, right? She and her partner leaves, and that's kind of a big, sad moment, but it's also part of life. And so can you talk about... um, Why that happened, and explain an intro who Racy is and what working on the farm and working with an ever shifting team kind of has taught you.
3: Sure. First of all, when you say something like, I have never worked on a farm, if you say that in front of Mark, you're in great danger of being recruited immediately because one of his missions in life is to just make sure that everybody has had the experience of getting their hands in the soil and feeling what it is to, you know, make food out of dirt and sun. Um, So if you say that when he gets here, I just warn you that he will probably throw you in the car and bring you north and put you to work.
4: The seed's been proverbially uh, planted. There you go.
3: Um, So Racy came uh, just to meet us one time. She was uh, working in international development, and her father and stepmother lived near us. And she came just one day when she was home on a break um, to help us weed, and she had the same very visceral reaction to that work that I did when I first did it on Mark's farm. Um, And she knew that she wanted to make it a big part of her life. So she kind of rearranged her life and she would spend the growing season with us um, learning skills and um, the rest of the year doing international development, usually in Africa. And um, she had a plan that she was going to start her own farm one day down the road. Um, and that's how a lot of the people who have worked for us over the years came to us. And, you know, they come and spend a couple of years with us, gain skills, and then they start their own places, um, which, you know, alongside food and books, producing new farmers and giving them new skills, I think is the most important thing that, that we can do um, on our place. And I think Mark and I are both really, really proud of that. Um, and then, you know, I think the time that Racy came, I was about to have a, our second daughter, Um, And we were close enough in age that Racy felt like a a friend. Um, Mark and I are old enough now that the people who come to work for us, we love them, but we're a different generation, and we don't have the same kind of closeness that we did. And um, Racy and I were really close. And I think in my imagination, because it can be very lonely sometimes, I had Racy kind of being with us indefinitely, and there was a moment when it was right for her to leave and start her own place of course and it there that was a tough point for me a tough tough inflection point because we had to become okay with the fact that we were going to be you know separate and the best of all worlds is that she started a farm just a few miles down the road from us so our relationship and our friendship has continued
4: mm-hmm. yeah when I read that moment I think I cried <laughs> um, but it <laughs> felt very symbolic um, I guess it, of how seasons change and as you know bountiful or maybe not so bountiful each season is um it will pass and something new will reset and that's just
3: how it is yeah i'm glad that you understand that because i didn't get it until i'm almost 50 um so that'll be good for you as you grow <laughs> older that's one is the biggest lesson of i think middle age is that you have to accept that things change so like Racy, um, Essex Farm attracts a wide variety
4: of people. So can you talk a bit about a few people and um, who are they? Where are they coming
3: from and why are they choosing to farm? Um, the person who's been with us the longest is named Barbara and she's in her seventies. Um, she's been with us almost the entire time that the farm has been um, in existence. And um, she brings just a level of kindness and maturity and experience. She had, she farmed for 15 years on her own before, um, before we met her. Um, so I think she came from the place of knowing that she loved farm work but not wanting to be um, an owner and have the responsibility and the risk of being a farm owner anymore. But being with us, I think, answered the deep need in her to be doing something productive around food. And so we've been really grateful to have her for all of this time. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Ann Brown is probably our second most um, long-term employee and came on board when she and her husband moved to the area um, for her husband's work. And Anne came to work in our office kind of because she needed, needed a job. Um, and she very efficiently, you know, took care of our books and at the same time, she had her eyes very wide open and was looking out the window of the little ratty office that we have on our farm and thinking that probably she would like to be out there in the fields more than in the office. And within a couple of years, she was um, working on our animal team, taking care of all the animals, and now for the last few years has run the animal team herself. So she's in charge of all the people who work in, in the animals, and she coordinates Feed and care and slaughter and distribution of meat and all the things that go into producing meat on our farm. Mm-hmm.
4: And so how has decision-making kind of changed um, since it was just you and Mark and now is a team of
3: over 30, right? Yeah, um, sometimes it's over 30. It depends on the season. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that I didn't mention in just now is that um, part of our team is Amish, So we have Amish people who don't use technology at all alongside um, what they call English people, us, um, who rely on technology a lot. Um, So one of the big management changes has been going from just this sort of like analog culture where we would have a small team and we could just meet talk about it, go do our work, come back, talk about it again to a team that is relying on, you know, our cell phones and WhatsApp and Trello to try to keep track of what's going on all the time. Um, And then we have to try to kind of fit the the Amish in there and, you know, we have a whiteboard where we list everything that the Amish team is doing and and they come in and, you know, make lists with dry erase markers (laughs) while everybody else is doing it digitally with their cell phones. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... For Mark, especially, having a larger team has meant trying trying to train himself not to micromanage mm-hmm. um, every element of this, you know, sprawling landscape, um, and learning to give up some of the power of con- control and decision making to the managers who are, who are taking care of different aspects of the farm, like Anne.
4: Mm-hmm. So not only um, not micromanaging, but um, it also feels like there are more stakes, um, in each decision. And so how do you kind of manage each person's stakes and how do you kind of, how have you noticed that maybe your principles or maybe your values are changing because, you know, you're now balancing so many other people in the room?
3: Um, you know, I think our values and our, our, uh, tenants of decision-making have stayed fairly much the same from the very beginning. You know, we've always tried to balance the economic viability with the farm, with the with social justice and, and the environmental benefits um, that we can potentially bring to farming. Um, but the way that plays out changes a lot over time when the scale of the farm changes. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, um, we built the farm around the idea of using draft horsepower. Um, and we used... Horses for most of our traction, a lot of the um, hauling around the farm. And uh, as we grew bigger, we, we started using tractors more frequently. Um, at the same time, we sort of switched our focus from trying to limit our fossil fuel fuel usage to changing our techniques so that we were sequestering more carbon in the soil, sort of looking at it as a spending versus saving um, kind of, kind of spreadsheet of carbon. Mm-hmm. I know I'm getting in the weeds and being a nerd about agriculture right now, so please <laughs> just very feel welcome. free to redirect. And Mark just came in. Yay! Okay. We'll
4: actually take a break, kind of catch Mark up, and then yeah, we'll come back. Sounds good.
2: Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th, for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California rangeland trust, the American land conservancy and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst ranch at Hurstranch.com.
4: Great. And we're back. Mark is now here. Okay, so um, the whole title, or the, I guess, question that I've been trying to weed through is um, identifying who the 1% is exactly, feeding the 99%, um, and can you give a face to this 1%? Who are they, who is electing to be a farmer today still, and can we kind of debunk the myth that farming is a simple job, et cetera, et cetera?
5: Great question. I think it's a complicated answer because it's a lot of people, and from my travels in the 90s when I got to visit probably about 60 or 70 farms across the country from really big places to um, tiny homesteads, I think the prevalent assumption that most farmers are aging out is still really accurate, and I think that while Kristen and I anecdotally saw a resurgence in agriculture over the last 20 years. In the last 10 years, it seems that people's willingness to redirect their own career track towards agriculture seems less exciting to them. I don't know if you would agree with that.
3: I think that's, we don't see the numbers that we used to see of kids who were graduating from college and, you know, really seriously considering farming as a career. The ones who do come bring the same passion that um, they ha- that we have seen for the last 20 years.
5: With perhaps a little less training?
3: With maybe a little less training. That
5: people 15 years ago would have come to us after having been on two or three farms and know their way around the udder of a cow.
3: But we've always found that the people who come with a desire and a passion um, to learn will learn, whether they have come with skills or not. People can also come with skills and not have, um, you know, a personality that will necessarily work on our farm in particular. But it's definitely something that's totally possible to learn today. And I still believe that it's a viable and reasonable career choice for somebody who, you know, comes to it with other choices.
4: Yeah, what do you think it is about our current political, social, economic climate that makes it so that um, that redirect of wanting to pursue something and farming is just not appealing anymore.
5: I think Kristen talked a couple years ago about how people who came of age after the housing bubble in 2008 when there was a worldwide economic downturn maybe had less bravery to look at a non-lucrative career like being a sculptor, or pursuing anthropology, or Peace Corps, or farming, all kind of lumped together as those things that we do when we're doing well. And again, from our anecdotal perspective, I think we saw fewer applicants after that era. Um, And I don't know that I would agree with Kristen that it's a viable alternative in the sense that most people see viability. And I think that's the question at hand, is what, when you graduate from middle school or high school or college and you're like, hey, I'm going into the workforce, I think because there are so few role models in farming who are successful, then it's really hard to have an image of, oh, I want to be that when I grow up. Um, There aren't famous farmers the way there are famous chefs. There's micro-famous farmers like Joel Salatin um, and a half a dozen others. But there isn't really, I think, uh, an imagery in any type of media besides the Occasional newspaper or magazine piece that says, "Here's this Vassar graduate who is starting a greens farm in Columbia County." So I think it's a combination of economics, fear, role models, and I, I you go
3: and expectations. I think I came from you know I was coming from the city, and my community here was made up of, of a lot of artists and writers and people who were used to. Um, making a living fit around what it was that they loved and were passionate about Mm -hmm. with maybe, especially at the age that I was then, not a lot of um, expectations for, for that thing to give you what other people would consider, you know, a a reasonable middle-class living. I think that's why it became a lot harder for me when we had kids um, because suddenly you know you feel more pressure to provide what the world thinks of as a um, as a an acceptable standard of American living when you have children to provide for and yeah.
5: that gene is absent of me,
3: and Mark doesn't have it. Mark <laughs> would very, very happily dress the children in sacks and fleeces know, and fleeces, yeah, <laughs> sure,
4: yeah, yeah so <laughs> let's go back to there being no um role model. I feel like there is this recent, but not entirely recent, um, growing interest in chefs being interested in where their food comes from and creating kind of freak hybrid custom vegetables. And I think that image gets conflated with like the neo farmer almost. And so do you think that trend could make for an exciting future in farming?
5: It would be fascinating. We've had a couple of chefs come to the farm over the years and to have them look at a crop of wheat and say, that's what wheat looks like? I'd have no idea that wheat started out looking like lawn Mm. when it first comes up. It's bright green and lawn-like. And while I think on our farm we have uh, antipathy towards the word artisan, we're we're here in Brooklyn at an artisan Mm -hmm. pizza place.
4: You can use it ironically here. Okay. Okay.
5: Well, you have to in Brooklyn, right? So... While that is there, I think a lot of chefs are so passionate. A lot of distilleries and a lot of breweries are now getting closer and closer to producing their own ingredients, or at least their desire is there, but maybe not their training. And so I think that's really exciting. It may well be that it's not consumers that drive farming to the next generation, but actually chefs and um, artisan alcohol producers who are actually like, wait, we need better barley. Where are we going to get it? Or we can't find a quality dough from this kind of wheat, how do we find it? So it may be that, that I don't think it's yet clear to me whether consumers in their homes or restaurateurs will will be part of that shift. But I think it's real. I think that everybody I know who eats food that's fresh from a farm that's using the most advanced soil building techniques has a aha moment of why does this taste so different? I buy my food organically from Whole Foods and this tastes way better. Why? And part of it Is the story part of it is the soil part of it is the climate, who produced it, what your connection to it is? But in any case, I think there are enough factors that we're all seeing that unite to suggest that fresh, local, healthy foods that are good for the environment could be a a significant part of our diet. And right now, it's a really small part of our diet,
4: yeah. And so, um Let's get into that disconnect and um, why is it that you know if I'm a consumer and I'm eco-conscious and I want to support the small to mid-size producer and then there's a producer who's a small to mid-size um, producer growing things that are good for your bodies and for the earth. Why can we
3: not get the two to talk and buy from each other? Well, uh, Mark wants to take this question. Can I just say two quick things? <laughs> get it. Okay. One is that. Um, the the logistics of a small to medium scale producer um, getting our food to somebody like you who lives here in the city, they're really tricky. Not only is it the transport, but the, the, um, you know, the food law um, around distribution has changed a lot in the last few years. So there's a lot of infrastructure requirements on the farm um, that have to do with food safety and water supply issues and where your packing house is and how many toilets do you have and blah 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 all of those things have become really really hard for a small producer to um, manage to afford when the profit margin on food um, is so tiny um, I'm going to give Mark the rest of this question because I can see him almost jumping <laughs> No I think you're, you're totally right
5: there's huge <laughs> barriers to entry and huge barriers to sustain small to mid scale farms but I think the biggest one right now is that just like a billion dollar IPO for a company small to mid-sized farms are a unicorn they don't exist it's powered by magic like there there isn't the economy of scale there isn't the labor force there isn't the training there isn't any of it so while the few of us I don't know if we're included in the small to mid-sized farms the few of us that are out there um are such a drop in the bucket for all the food we eat you know there aren't many mid-scale wheat growers or
3: or. Oh, meat raisers who then have to find a slaughterhouse that's USDA certified that might be, you know, 300 miles away.
5: Yeah, so I think, I think it's a combination of factors, and I think you're exactly right that it's, the reason there aren't many of them is partly the barriers. Um, and I think the other complicating factor that comes up is that as food literature increases, I would argue that food literacy is decreasing because it suddenly as a complicated terrain, and that I just had breakfast with a number of Brooklynites over lox and bagels who had sort of given up on organic because they're like, well, there's got to be a lot of fake organic labels out there, and so we're not even buying organic anymore. And I was like, wait, hold the press. I haven't heard a lot from any of my producer friends or any of my consumer friends of mislabeled organic. There is, obviously, with any system, some failures of that system, but they had sort of been so overwhelmed by the disenchantment of, quote, organic, because there's now hydroponic organic and big companies are inorganic and little companies, that they had sort of given it up and they're just going to Trader Joe's and getting GMO-free almonds, Hmm. right? So that conversation comes in full circle. And I said, yeah, but if I was worried about my health in Brooklyn, I would always buy 100% organic first, and then I would start pursuing the small and mid-scale farms that we're talking about to see if I could get it better than that. Um, But I think that's part of the post-pollen era of there's a lot of information and it's really complicated is what kind of lettuce should I eat? We were talking about hydroponics. Is hydroponics better or worse than soil-based conventional or organic? And suddenly there's the realization that like the weather, there's a million variables in how we get our food, not only how it's produced, but how we cook it and how we get it. That I think that all of that has changed the framework so that people are content with whole foods.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, the example I... Um, come back to again and again with Kristen is um, just buying eggs is so difficult now because there's cage free, pastured um, blah 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 and it's very overwhelming and then you just end up buying the one that with the nice packaging and so how would you <laughs> advise the consumer to kind of navigate all these forms of kind of food
3: illiteracy illiter- I would almost say Is that you or me? Um, well, Coral and I have talked about it before and I really want to hear your answer so I'm going <laughs> to throw it to you
5: I'll take it One of the things that I've repeated over the past few years to that question is what if you were to double your food budget as the first change? You just doubled it. See if you can figure it out. Pay a little bit less for X, Y and Z so you can double your food budget so that you're not as coupled to how much can I afford, but more I'm going to invest more in food, which I think is a huge component of our health. Let's say that food, if it's really good for you, is 20% of your health, and food, if it's really not good for you, like junk food, is probably 90% of your not health. So let's double that. Let's say we want to invest in health. Then the first answer might be when you buy your eggs, I'm going to buy the most expensive eggs. But you don't yet know if the most expensive eggs are the best ones for you. But somebody has put a value on those eggs to say, these are worth more. And then to do a little research in your free time to say, who is this? oh, this turns out that this was Monsanto's egg factory. I don't know if that exists, but maybe it was not what you thought, and they weren't actually any better. And then you have to actually do the research of what makes a healthy chicken. And that's a long process that Kristen and I, after, in my case, 25 years of raising chickens for eggs, have some ideas about what would make a healthy chicken egg. And I think it would involve almost no grain, lots of pasture, Um, But in the winter, no grain for a chicken is a really challenging thing, so maybe it would need weed seeds and complex bedding. I would argue that chickens eating bugs is really good, so maybe you have places where they take their compost and inoculate it with bugs, and then the chickens get to eat the bugs from the waste material but make sure the compost was organic to start with. So I think you could go down a very long route in pursuing the perfect egg, and I think that's what chefs are doing. As a consumer, though, this idea that if we wanted to invest more in our food could lead to higher quality, I think, is a fun starting place.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris and I were also talking about how um, quote-unquote organic stuff is also so packaged and very prettily labeled and marketed, and um, I kind of sympathize with the Brooklyn you had breakfast with this morning, where I'm just so overwhelmed, I'm just going to trust someone out there to decide for me that this is what I'm going to eat, and yes, it comes in a box, but um, it's healthy apparently, and it's Um, within my price point, and I'm supporting some kind of good out there. And so how would you kind of advise then um, for the consumer to consider the small producer?
3: I think that farmer's market is still a very good answer to that. That's the place where you can go and you can put a face on the person who is probably, you know, very connected to the actual bird that laid that egg. And you can ask your questions. And, you know, farmers love to talk about what they do. And it's a huge opportunity for us to tell our story. It's a huge opportunity for consumers to become, you know, incrementally more literate about um, food production, and to for both sides to to meet and to exchange ideas as well as money for food, um, and to support those places. I think when you are in a city that has so many options for. Um, for really, really good farmers' market is a great thing to do. That's what I would do if I were still living here and, and I were looking for you know a way to increase my health. And um, you just have to you have to educate yourself about the questions that are important to you. And I think that um, the whole idea of the ethics of eating and of buying food is complicated enough that you have to define your own values before you know what questions to ask. You know, for some people. Um, social justice is more important than um, animal rights so you might want to talk about what you're paying your farm workers and do they have health insurance Um, for other people climate change is important so you can talk about um, how they're taking care of their soil and are they you know, what's their carbon budget like and all of these other things and not not only that but your farmer that you're talking to is going to fall madly in love with you because somebody is interested in the nitty gritty of what we do
5: And and as you're talking, I I agree. I think farmer's markets are a beautiful starting place. But I also think if um, my observations aren't misplaced, I think a place like Brooklyn seems actually counterintuitively like one of the most conformist places Mm -hmm. that everybody wants to talk about how native their beer was and that everyone is kind of sort of hurtling along towards what everybody else does. Well, you go to Trader Joe's? That's cool. I go to the farmer's market. And everyone kind of is looking to each other for guidance. But I'm thinking out of the box that what I would do if I was stuck in Brooklyn stuck. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to live here. This is ridiculous. I didn't get to touch soil or walk barefoot for four days. I'm suffering. So I would actually find a a restaurant that does all organic food. And I would say to the chefs or whoever's in the kitchen, what would it take for me to be able to just pay you 150, 300, $800 a month to just be able to have access to your food?
4: Mm -hmm. But why do you need the restaurant to be your... Intermediate,
5: Because hopefully, if, they, if they've if they already said that they're all buying organic and they're hopefully getting whole food that they're going to then cook, it would be a one-stop shop to say they've already done the curating. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't have to go to 50 different farmer's markets to find butter and lamb and grains, that they would hopefully have had those sources. So there may be a way to do something out of the box like that. But I think the bigger answer is you've got this problem of what to eat in cities and you've got this problem of nobody's farming. I think move out and come farm that you can actually raise your own chickens and start having that. And it, the whole conversation of eggs makes me uncomfortable because I know in Silicon Valley now people are spending a hundred thousand dollars on a chicken coop to raise a dozen eggs with their kids in their backyard. And there's something wonderful about raising chickens, and there's also something disgustingly elite about maybe how we farm, but how that farming practice seems to be unrolling that you can have this little zoo in your backyard that had used more inputs than an entire <laughs> state to, to grow an egg. That there's something quite unsettling to me about that as well.
4: Mm-hmm. I think another hypothetical solution is the, um, CSA model, which is something you guys do. So can you talk about what that is and what kind of problems that you've been trying to, or why you even started to do this? Because like you said, having a diversified farm is incredibly expensive and a headache and a lot to manage. And so why you guys keep
3: doing it? Um, do you want me to talk about about what CSA is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so CSA was an idea that originated in Japan in the nineteen eighties, came spread to Europe and then to America. Was it Elizabeth um, Henderson? Henderson, I think, maybe started the first CSA. Robin year. Van
5: N is also credited with some of the initial work around
3: it. And I want to say that was like late 1980s. Is that, does that sound right? I think a little earlier than that. Okay. Um, and the concept of CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, is that farms are working in partnership with the people who are eating from them. Um, farms produce, uh, you know, the, the, a certain amount of produce, or in our case, a whole diet. And um, the members uh, invest in the farm in the beginning of the season. And um, every week... Uh, get the um, dividend of what the farm has raised or produced um, typically in the beginning it was just vegetables a lot of CSAs have diversified into um, most commonly the next step would be eggs um, and some of them just do meat so there's lots of meat CSAs now out in the world but um, and I think there are a few other full diet CSAs. I'm not sure. I haven't heard about anybody doing it recently, but I know that some farms have tried and, and a lot of farms have diversified. Um, the beauty of the CSA model is the very direct relationship between the farmer and the consumer. Um, there's an idea of shared risk, that if the farmer you know, has a, a bad year, that the consumer um, you know, accepts some of the risk of that bad year. In our case, we've never really... We've always made sure that our, our members have, um, uh, you know, a full, plentiful diet, even if we have a bad year, and that sometimes means buying in from another farm or something like that. But um, in our case, because our, our share is complete, full diet, it, it means that people are spending, you know, pretty much their entire food budget to eat from our farm. So we feel a, a deep responsibility to make sure that they're fed for the year. Um the advantages for a farmer is that those upfront costs that we all hit um, early in the year are taken care of by memberships that are usually prepaid in some way or guaranteed in some way. Um, and for the consumer, they get the beauty of knowing exactly what the practices are that their farmer is using, um, being able, you know, to to see the the story of the food that they're eating. Um, I think our members would say that they get. Um, A very specific taste and a very specific quality that comes from producing all of these products on one piece of land um I think we feel that that we get you know the benefit of of uh the taste of diversity um everything coming from one place
5: yeah and I think the taste is really the starting point is that most people haven't had milk that's less than 24 hours old or they haven't eaten um Vegetables that just literally came out of the ground that day and end up on their plate. I was at dinner last night with one of our members on the Upper West Side, and they don't understand why the whole city isn't signed up to be our memberships. They went on for probably two to three hours saying, our kids don't get sick. We don't get sick. Our kids go to public school. There is strep running through all these places, and our kids aren't getting sick. What's going on? What are you doing to your food? And it was so gratifying to listen to them because they're really supporting us and have for many years on the deepest way they call me up every couple of months and say nobody in the world gets to eat like this she's an incredible chef the food quality from our farm is decent if not excellent and the combination means that they're eating food I mean I ate that dinner last night and I thought that was one of the best meals I've had in a long time they just dialed it but for them I think it started with taste and then a connection to the farm and then over the years raising up their kids on our food They've had other neighbors that said the same thing. Wow, why don't we get sick when we eat this fresh food? And so it's not what we're doing particularly well, although that is certainly part of it. I think we have experience and skills. But I think what we've taken out of the food that is normally added to it is so important. Yeah. I think we haven't used high-tech you know, conventional fertilizers. We don't use a lot of the organic sprays we could. We don't use the conventional sprays. Um, what we're not adding to the food system is maybe enough to be a whole different food supply
3: and that kind of ties into what uh we've talked about i think that the answer to a lot of these questions of the ethics of eating and the the deliciousness of eating is do less you know instead of choosing the the processed product Mm -hmm. choose the food that just came out of the dirt um you know instead of trying to think of what supplements we need in order to make us healthy do less and and you know trace your food back to its origin and eat it as close to where it came from as possible
5: Mm
2: -hmm.
5: and in what in what to choose when you go to buy something even if your budget or timeline only allows you to go to a whole foods or a trader joe's or a health food store i think michael Pollan was right that it should look like food you know it should look like wheat berries ideally and you would have a mill at your house but if not then at least freshly milled flour you can look at whole pieces of food and bring them home and make really good meals and that as soon as you take ownership that you're not waiting for some new diet advice but that you're actually starting to become your own health care provider it's like you're almost we're almost creating an hmo for yourself right that you're way more attuned to what is healthy for you than you're giving yourself credit for i think that's true for all of us we all have the desire to buy and drink soda but you can actually not drink soda (laughs) and you can make a choice to have other nutrition that makes you feel full that you don't have that mid-morning craving for coffee or soda. So I think, I think we could all also just ask ourselves simple ethical questions about what we eat. And the answers are probably closer to easy than this conversation might suggest that we can actually say, well, what is healthy for my body right now? Well, I'm doing a lot of running for the marathon, so I do need a lot more calories and where do I want them from? And I feel really good when I eat healthy organic fats. So I'm going to eat more fats and that feels great to me. Or, I sit at a desk, so I want greens, but in the middle of the winter, I want shredded celery root with shredded carrots instead of spinach, which doesn't grow at this time of year. And the idea of meeting seasonality with whole food and cooking it yourself is really close to, I think, the ideal diet is what's out there now and how do we get it?
4: Mm-hmm. In our last five minutes, do you guys want to talk about your biggest gripes or frustrations with our food world and kind of your proposed solutions, if you have any?
3: I think one of the hardest things for people to deal with is the ubiquity of food um, that's available to us out of season. And I think we uh, lose touch with our own appetites and our own palate because all food is available at all times in our world right now. Um, And I think... If people could just, again, do less, eat in season, eat as fresh as possible and as unprocessed as possible, I think they regain a connection to their own palate and to their own body and their own appetite um, that a lot of us have lost in the modern world, me included, before farming. Now, I can't, well, you know, if you offered me a strawberry in January, it just looks wrong to me and it tastes wrong to me. Um, but, you know, I didn't know if you had asked me before I started farming when strawberries were ripe in the Northeast. So that's what I would say. You have a gripe?
5: It's not a gripe, it's more of an invitation, I think. That when I look around any urban or suburban or rural area, I, all I see is farmers. Whenever I see a human being, I see a farmer. And the invitation is, to put your energy where your mouth is. I don't know how to say this, but basically, if we keep losing the percentage of farmers we're losing every year to other industries because it's not a valued career, then it will be a very, very small number of people making highly processed food for everyone else. So if you actually want to eat a whole diet of really healthy food, everyone I'm looking at here has to become a farmer. Like anyone who has a remote hope that food is part of our health and that it needs to be made better requires that millions of us re-inhabit the landscape from which food comes and does it in a really exciting way. So that, that's my, my, my cause celeb, which is like, come on, everybody, stop eating pizza, come with us, head north. There's beautiful land all over the world that is not being farmed because it's not a viable career. And I think the way you make something viable is you bravely take it on as a piece of art and transform it.
4: Mm -hmm. And if listeners want to become a farmer, how do they get in touch with you? And if they don't, how do they get in touch with your CSA?
5: (laughs) Great question. So we're on the internet as Essex Farm CSA, and my text number is at the top of our website. Um, And it's just text me 518-570-6399. And I will respond and you can have any crazy food question or how do I become a farmer? And I think it's about 10 years of training to become adept at raising plants and animals, if you're doing it in a diversified way. And
3: You're invited. All right. Well, thank you both
4: for joining me
5: today.
3: Thank you. Meant to be eaten is powered
4: by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.